Good morning. So we've been on a sermon series on righteousness for a while now. So just to recap, we've talked about multiple things, and I'm going to do a very, very short summary, but we've been given God's righteousness as our own. So in some ways, we're covered, right? And at the same point, we're also invited to continue to grow and to develop and to become more in his character because to become more in his character is to also become more righteous and to live with that, okay? So that's still what we're going to stick with today. Um, Before we get into the sermon, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I just thank you for our time together. I thank you for your peace in this situation. I pray, Lord, that you would just um, prepare our hearts for the sermon, and Lord, that I would speak what you would have me say. In your name, amen. So I'm going to talk about the law today. It's a very popular topic. Um, So at the end, I'm going to, law always gets really confusing, so I'm going to open up for some questions. So if you think of something as we're talking, write it down. We'll sort of hopefully try to clarify it if any gets confusion. So to put the law in context, I think it's really important to think about in the biblical story where it lands. And so right before you get that, you notice the fact that Moses is sent to the Israelites to bring them out of Egypt. He doesn't show up with a contract that says, well, if you sign on the dotted line and follow these rules, then God will save you, right? That's not what happens. God saves them, and then he gives them the law. So the law can't be for salvation. It's got to be for something else. So the question is, what's it for? What's the point of the law? Because if you talk to most people, you'd probably get something along the lines of, oh, well, it was for salvation, but now we have Jesus. That's not what the law is for. So what's it for? So you've got to look at what happens right before that. So the law is given at Mount Sinai. Now, what's different between before Mount Sinai and after Mount Sinai is is God's presence. So before Mount Sinai, excluding Eden, after the fall, there is no point where you have God just dwelling with people. He visits them, but he doesn't just spend time with them in extended periods of time. It's not until Mount Sinai that all of a sudden God is there with them in a very intimate way, prolonged exposure to them. Okay? So the law is teaching us about to, how to live in proximity to the God of the universe. Okay? So that's what the law is. Now, that may seem sort of strange, um, but that's, that, let's go ahead and we're going to keep going with that. The next thing to sort of think about is, is how much should the law impact our lives? Well, if you start reading through, say, the law, let's just talk, stick Leviticus here. Thank you. Um, Leviticus is wonderful, has so many amazing things, but when you start to look at all the things it tells you it should impact in your life, it should impact your finances, the way you work, the way you dress, the food you eat, procreation, menstruation, skin diseases, and plenty of other things. So when you start to look at that list, it pretty impacts, much impacts all of life. There isn't a point where life should be excluded from it. And that's part of the point, to be shaped and to continue to conform more to God's character and his image is to impact all of your life. Not part of it, all of it. So 
We're going to dive into some fun ones this morning. Leviticus 19, 19. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Parallel passage, Deuteronomy 22, 9-11. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole field be forfeited. The crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. So I stand before you today dressed in 100% cotton. <laughs> Hence why I'm dressed down a little bit today, trying to conform to the, the rules, okay? Right? So we get to this point where you've know, you got to ask, how do you respond to a verse like this? If you think the law is pointless, then you just say, ah, we don't care. If you think the law is important, you, know, you read commentators will say something like, well, we don't really understand why it's there. We should just do it. Hopefully, that's not con- you know, you're not content with that, either of those responses. So we've got to think about how do we respond to it. So my mother and I were talking about this a while back, and she says she remembers reading an article, because she she's too young to remember this, but... Um, thank you. <laughs> um, she, that, that the church really struggled with synthetic fabrics when they came out. Because if you go look in your wardrobe, mostly everything you have is a mixture, right? And so the church was like, well, how do we respond to this when Leviticus and Deuteronomy say, you're not supposed to be doing this? Well, you'll notice, this is one, I, if, if it wasn't this outfit, I'd be in my birthday suit today because I really have nothing else that's not a mixture. So, uh, so on the one side, what are we supposed to do with our clothes? On the other side, um, if we can't figure out what to do with this, we may have to have an intervention for Stephen because have you seen his gardens? You know, the, when he was in high school, he grew uh, squash and corn together. I know, right? <laughs> Recently, I've seen him growing peas, climbing his sorghum. So if we're going to take this verse seriously, we either got to come to something or we're going to have to inter- have an intervention for Stephen. So. <laughs> so before we get some clarity on this, we actually need to get more confused, I feel like. Then, we need to, then we'll hopefully get less confused. So if we go to 1 Kings... 33, 34. And the king said, and this is David talking, said, take with you the servants of the Lord, your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gehan and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. Did you catch that? What was the weird thing? Mule. Yes. Yeah, it's a mixture, right? Now, David's supposed to be a good guy who's following the law, right? And he's like, you should ride on a mule. That's weird. You get another verse in uh, 2 Samuel 18, 9, which is Absalom, and he rides on a mule. You'd expect that of Absalom. I mean, it's Absalom, right? (laughs) But David, really? What about the uh, Exodus 28, 15? You shall make a breast piece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, you shall make it. So this is describing the high priest's garments. Now this is God talking. Didn't he just say not to make mixtures? And now he's saying make mixtures. I'm confused. The garment of the high priest, this is a quote from uh, one of my favorite um, uh, 
commentators, James Jordan, the garment of the high priests were mixed, dyed with thread that had to be wool since linen did not take ancient dyes. However, the holy garments were interwoven with gold thread, so they were a combination of animal wool, vegetable linen, and mineral gold. So he just broke the rules. He told, told you you're not supposed to, and then he went and did it. All right. What about the, uh, the next one? Exodus 36, 8 to 9. And all the craftsmen among the workmen make the tabernacle with ten curtains. They were made of fine twin, twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns with cherubim skillfully worked. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain was four cubits. All the curtains were the same size. Another mixture. I thought this was a rule not about mixtures. God doesn't seem to be very good at following his rules or we've got something else. And then we've got another one here. So in Leviticus 25, 11 to 12, that 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from, under, from the undressed vines. For it is ju- a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. Now if you read that, you might think, well, there wasn't anything too controversial there. But if you think about it, if you're not planting a field, what comes up in the field? Well, or, you know, it's going to be a combination of things, right? You get some, you know, if you planted wheat, you'll probably get some wheat, but you're also going to potentially get other things in there. So you're going to get this, this crop that is not one thing. And God's saying, yeah, you're supposed to do that. Every 50 years, you're supposed to let that happen. All right. So what are we supposed to make of these verses? So to put this in context, I think, you know, sometimes we just, we don't see it, we don't do it, so it's hard. So I'm trying to think of like examples in our daily lives that we see these type of things. Um, with the shutdown of sports, I'll use some sports analogies to give you guys something to, you know, think about. Um, so in baseball, we all know that the pitcher bats, unless of course it's the American League. In basketball, you know that if you have a shot inside the three-point line, it's worth two points, unless there's a foul, and then it's free throws, and it's worth one point per shot, right? So there's some breaks to that. Now we go to Missouri Law 307.095. I know, you guys are really excited. Leviticus quoting was bad, but now we're going to quote from Missouri Law here. Um, Missouri Law talks about how the headlights on your vehicle and all the sort of lights associated with it are supposed to be uh, white and yellow, no reds, that type of thing. Now, if you see a vehicle zipping past you and it's got red and blue lights going, you don't think, they're not following Missouri (laughs) 307.095. What are you thinking? It's an emergency vehicle, right? They're the exception to the rule. The rule's made for them, right? It's a reminder of something for us. We're We're not those people. We're not supposed to be doing those things. So there's a difference, okay. So if we have that thinking about how those verses, or how this can be applied to Leviticus and how to think about that, what do we do with this? So before we get into that, um, I wanna think about one extra really crazy animal mixture that we see, um, and we'll go to Ezekiel 1, 5 to 10. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on the four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings. Thus, their wings touched one another. Each of them went straight forward without turning as they went, 
As for the likenesses of their face, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. That's a lot of mixture right there. Exodus 25, 17 and 19. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them. On the two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherub on one side and one cherub on the other. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. Now you'll notice also if in we, when we were describing the tabernacle material, Exodus 36, the cherubim were interwoven into that material. So not only is it interwoven into the tabernacle material, but it's on the mercy seat also, these cherubim, these mixtures. So if you start to think about this, we've got the priests, the tabernacle, and those creatures basically that are in God's presence. Some people refer to cherubim as basically like um, uh, throne guardians, God's throne guardians. But that there's something about that. So all of this is very like in that hot spot, that holy hot spot. And so, Andrew, if you would throw up that slide for me. Leviticus has already been building on a lot of this, and so there's sort of this expectation. So, if you, we're going to move from the dark area to the very lightest area. So, in the way Leviticus thinks and the law thinks, the nations are way outside of the camp. And if you see on here the scale on the one side, at the bottom, that same color corresponds to basically profane. And as you move at farther in, outside of the camp is unclean, where if you have certain skin diseases or other things, you get put outside of the camp and you're unclean. If you move into the camp, that's where the common Israelites get to be. And at that point, you're clean. To go into the courtyard, that's where the Levites are. And so they are holy. To go into that holy place is to, you know, sort of like you get to that next level of holy. And then to go into that very holy place, you have to be very holy. And that's only the high priest that gets to go in there. And as you start to look at those, so the, the priests get to wear um, a mixture only on their belt. The high priest wears a full mixture. Everything's a mixture. Okay? So what happens is, is we have this, this movement where to be a mixture, you get access to something that no one else does. Does that make sense? You guys are okay with that? So we have this, this point where the priest, the tabernacle, and the cherubim are associated with the holy of holies. Now, we've got to make a sense of two other ones, right? So when we had God's, God adopting, um, so we have David, right? And he says, he's going to ride a mule. Well, he's not a priest. What in the world do we do with that? Well, we have Second Psalm, uh, Second Samuel seven fourteen to 6. I will be a father to him, this is God talking, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And you get to see that also in Psalm 2, Psalm 89, 27. Solomon's dedication of the temple, you get to see him actually perform somewhat of a different role than just a, a king. Um, and so what happens is, is that the Davidic line actually holds a strange place as what some people call quasi-holy or semi-holy. They are allowed to do things that the average person can't. The average Israelite can't. They are adopted by God and that gives them a, a strange role. 
Um, and the final one, the year of Jubilee. Well, that's outside of the Holy of Holies. What are we going to do with that? Well, at that point, the land actually becomes God's. So God can do what he wants because it's his land. And so the land is holy. Not, and it's because it's God's land at that point. It's not their land. It's God's land. And so the land becomes holy. And God can make mixtures where he wants, which is what he's done with the cherubim. And so when you are in God's presence, that's where those mixtures are. Okay? So what is this idea really trying to teach us? Strange, right? Um, quote from James Jordan, In the Old Covenant, mixtures were forbidden, not because they created defilement, but because they brought things into the realm of holiness, where God's judgment operated more strongly. Simply to create such a mixture is to move oneself under the gun of God's holy inspection, a fatal mistake. To take yourself from being a common Israelite, to move yourself into that holy of holy claim, basically, that realm where you are extra high, um, expectations of holiness, you don't want that without the correct covering, without the, you know, without the certain steps that come with it, you don't want to be under that gun. And that's the reminder, is, is that to go into God's play, space is the response that Isaiah has, right? He has that vision. He has the vision of being in the holy place. And he's like, I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man. I'm not supposed to be here. That's the reminder here, okay? We're reminding, our, they're, they're reminding the Israelites that to come into that place is a big deal. To quote Michael Heiser, sacred space is different than common space. People who are allowed on sacred space are different than people who aren't. These prohibitions in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy later are given to remind people that mixture is associated with sacred space. So it's something to remind ourselves. Now, we're on the other side of the cross. What are we supposed to do with this? All right, so 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own position, possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous white light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So you just got to step up, right? You're not just an average Israelite. You're a priest. You get to come already closer, right? So you're not the high priest. So you get to go into the holy place. That's pretty good, right? But it gets better. It gets so much better. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17 do not, you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So not only do you get to go into the holy place, you are the holy of holies place, right? You are walking around right now with God's presence in you. That's crazy. That's a crazy thing. So we're on the other side of this law, right? So how are we supposed to deal with this law? What are we supposed to do with this? I think what's really interesting about Leviticus is, is that in, maybe to think the opposite, what does our Western culture teach us? Which is, if you want to understand something, you should distill it down to an easily absorbable idea, and then you should learn that idea and memorize it, and you're good to go. Leviticus doesn't do that, right? No, it gives you weird rituals and says, do this. This is what God decided to come up with, right? He he's trying to tell us that the way he wants us to learn about how to live in his presence 
is not always through ideas, which is very contrary to our Western culture, right? He wants us to learn some rituals and to be transformed by repeating those rituals and to learn something about that. Now, how are we gonna apply that in our lives? That's the question. So I have some suggestions. There's no rule book that says out there, well, this is exactly what the ritual should look like on the other side of the law. <laughs> so we wanna think about it some. So one, you could, every single time you put on your clothes, look at the tags, assuming you have them, and read what the material's out of to remind yourself that you're a mixture. You're a divine mixture, and that's okay. You're allowed to do that. You're allowed to wear those mixtures because you're on the other side of the cross. And so you are the Holy of Holies. You can't get any closer, you know, type of thing. That's where you are right now. So it's all right. So that could be one way to remind yourself. If you're a gardener, if you're like Stephen, maybe you don't plant everything as a mixture, but you plant a section that's not a mixture to remind yourself, again, that you are a mixture. And if you're normally one who's, you know, very nice, neat, orderly rows of green beans and tomatoes, etc., you maybe put a section with a mixture to remind yourself that you're a mixture and that's okay. You're this place that overlaps with the Holy of Holies and that is transform transformative. And that's the idea. It's to remind yourself daily, every day, that you are a temple and that matters in the fear and the t you know, s that you see in the world right now you're a walking temple. You're a holy hotspot. It can't get any better than that. So we've got this application to the the whole, you know, to this idea, um, and we've we've sort of talked about this. I wanted to open it up for questions or comments, thoughts, before we close. Anything? Everyone tracked with all we talked about this morning? Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things, and the reason we did it with this one is, is to, you know, we want to understand what the law was intended for in the first place. Because it's very easy, I think, in, to, to fall into this. You know, if you've probably heard people talk about forbidden mixtures, oh, well, it's to prevent sterile animals or, you know, whatever else type of thing. And that's, we want to understand truly what the law was trying to, what was the idea it was trying to teach. Not because we want to just get it to an idea, but because then we can, once we understand the idea, then we can talk about what would say, an application of that be in our lives. Yeah? Kind of like on the terms of health, though, with some of the things that they teach in the legal law, what do you do with this? Still pertinent for a day? What do you mean? Like some of the things that you would use for skin ailments or some of the herbs or the things that they talk about, like the holy wills of the Bible. Um, so you're talking like leprosy? Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, so you're talking like leprosy. Um, Yeah, and so I think you know, what we want to understand, though, is, is that those rules are, yes, maybe, but that we need to understand like, that when God's saying these things, he's not trying to create a, um, a recipe book for health. That was never the point. That's not what that was for. That's not what the law was for. That was supposed to be teaching something else. It might be also for some of those things. The, the law of mixtures, we could, just, we could go on all day about all the really amazing things. I'm hitting one aspect of just law of mixtures. 
Um, and so the idea is, is that doesn't mean that we can't potentially gather some things from health, but I think we want to be careful that we understand the big point before we worry about the small point. Does that make sense? And I think I, what I'm, I worry and I often see is, is that I feel like people grab onto that small point without understanding truly the big point. What's God really trying to teach with this? And they go, oh, well, you know, I should, I should just be healthier. But if you don't realize that you're, you're the holy place, you know, like you're worried, people are worried about how um, we should be, you know, taking, you know, extra vitamin C or something like that when you're walking around as the holy hotspot of God. <laughs> and that, that changes how you interact with this physical world. Does that make sense? Okay. I do have a question about yeah. unclean. Yeah. Versus yeah. the other. Mm. So you're on your way into the Holy of Holies. You are there. You're in the temple. Mm-hmm. How does the unclean, uh, what should become unclean? Because Moses was unclean sometimes and that kind of thing. In today's world, how does that associate itself with you being in the temple? Okay, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we, I, I've proposed to the elders the idea of doing Leviticus for a while, you know, at different points, and I'm going to come through because there's, there's so much to draw out of this. I, basic, basic just, I think one of the things that's interesting is, is that um, the way Leviticus is teaching, it's talking about ritual uncleanness, which is different than moral uncleanness. And there's an important distinction there. So in our, again, for our Western minds, I think we often struggle with, we, we associate them as the same thing. Um, oh, well, I'm morally unclean, so I'm ritually unclean. And like the way Leviticus is teaching, it's about ritual uncleanness. And so morally uncleanness is its own thing. And we, uh, like, we could go on this for a long time, but that would, until we understand that distinction, we re- it's really hard to sort of like talk deeper into that. Does that make sense? So I know it doesn't really actually answer your question, but. <laughs> so what would that do for us today? What would that do? You're saying... If we are in a holy holy, mm-hmm. do we have a way to become unclean again? Is that a Bible? Ah, 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 ah. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So at the end of the day, um, that's the beauty of Christ's death, which is that he is constantly cleaning us. It's a constant cleaning. So does that maybe help with, you know, so at the end of the day, we're, for us here, like, that's the beauty is, is Christ's, you know, like, death isn't a one-time deal that just sort of happens, but it's a constant. Like, doesn't mean that you can't keep growing, but it also means that you continually are in the Holy of Holies. You can't ever fall out into the unclean or just the clean. You are holy, and you can't change that fact. And it's important for us to remind ourselves of that because it's very easy to fall into the thinking, I messed up. Now I'm unclean. Nope. You're not. You're holy. Can't, you can't mess that up at this point. You're there um, because you've, you've asked Christ in your heart. He dwells in you, and so he continually cleans you every single day, every single moment, every single, you know, continuously. Does that make sense? Except for one thing. Yeah. Except you say, except if you say you can't walk out of that, but if someone does the unforgivable sin. We can get, you know, like, okay. but I'm just saying, for, for, the average, for the average Christian, we, we fall into the trap of saying, I screwed up. And so I'm no longer holy. No, you still are holy. Yes, you made a mistake. Yes, you sinned. And Christ is still paying and covering that. Does that make sense? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Right. Yes. 
Right. But like, yeah, that's, that's one of the, you know, again, you know, living on the other side of the cross, it's different, which is we, even thinking about, say, what uncleanness or cleanness ought is needs to be rethought in the context of the fact that Christ is cleaning us constantly. And that's amazing. That's not what I'm saying. Yes. No. Thank you for that. Thank you for that clarification. I appreciate it. Okay. <laughs> Anything else? Okay. Perfect. All right. So I'm going to close with a, a quote from James Jordan. The prohibition on mixtures had nothing whatsoever to do with hybridization of plants or with personal hygiene and clothing or with eliminating sterile mules. Rather, these laws serve to make the people intimately aware of the presence of of God in their midst, and of their need to walk circumspectly in terms of his holiness. They were not to encroach upon his holy mixtures or defile his holy places and holy relationships, either in sacral or in domestic life. It is here that we find the abiding and evangelical equity of these laws. For surely as new covenant saints, holy ones should be careful in our moral walk before the Holy One of Israel. And so we are that holy place, and as such, what you do in front of the cherubim you should think about a little bit. Um, you're in that holy spot. And, but the best part is you're a holy mixture because God made you that way. And so you are that spot where heaven and earth overlap because you're the temple. Lord, I thank you for your death on the cross and for allowing us to be in that holy place, for us to be that holy hotspot where we can go throughout the world and bring that to others. In your name, amen.